Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the staggering fraud Letitia James, the New York Attorney General, accused Trump of in the civil fraud suit she filed today against Trump, the Trump Organization, and Donald Jr., Eric, and Ivanka Trump, who she claims are integral to the deception an example of which is valuing Mar-a-Lago at $749 million, when in fact it's worth $75 million. Joining us is David K. Johnston, a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter and best-selling author of The Making of Donald Trump. A 13-year veteran of the New York Times, he won the Pulitzer Prize for reporting that uncovered loopholes in inequities in the U.S. tax code, and he has uncovered so many tax dodges that he's been called the de facto tax enforcement officer of the United States. The co-founder of dcreport.org, his latest book is The Big Cheat, How Donald Trump Fleeced America and Enriched Himself and His Family, and we will discuss how, as the law closes in on Trump, he threatens to unleash violence and stoke civil war using militias and cult followers like QAnon. Then we'll assess the threats made today by Putin to call up reserves annex captured territory in Ukraine and possibly use nuclear weapons, declaring that it's not a bluff. Joining us is Michael Kimmage, a professor of history and department chair at the Catholic University of America, chair of the Cannon Institute Advisory Council and a fellow at the German Marshall Fund. From 2014 to 2017, he served on the Secretary of State's policy planning staff at the U.S. Department of State where he held the Russia-Ukraine portfolio. His latest book is The Abandonment of the West, The History of an Idea in American Foreign Policy, and we will discuss his article at Foreign Affairs, Putin's Next Move in Ukraine, Mobilize, Retreat, or Something in Between. Then finally, we'll examine President Biden's address today before the United Nations General Assembly and speak with Richard Gowan, UN Director at the International Crisis Group, He has worked with the European Council on Foreign Relations, New York University Centre on International Cooperation and the Foreign Policy Centre in London, and has also worked as a consultant for organisations including the UN Department of Political Affairs, the UN Office of the Special Representative of the Secretary-General on International Migration, and the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. We will discuss his article at Just Security, Richard Gowan on Ukraine and how Russia's wall reverberates at the United Nations. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our non-profit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now, David K. Johnson, a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter and best-selling author of The Making of Donald Trump, a 13-year veteran of the New York Times. He won a Pulitzer Prize for reporting that uncovered loopholes and inequities in the U.S. tax code, and he has uncovered so many tax dodges that he's been called the de facto tax enforcement officer of the United States, the co-founder of DCReport.org. His latest book is 
The Big Cheat, How Donald Trump Fleeced America and Enriched Himself and His Family. Welcome to Background Briefing, David K. Johnson. Well, glad to be with you again, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, David. And today, of course, is a big news for the New York State Attorney General's filed this fairly comprehensive lawsuit today against former President Donald Trump and three of his adult children, uh, Donald Trump Jr., Eric Trump, and Ivanka Trump, and the Trump Organization. They're basically accusing the Trump Organization and the family of an expansive fraud operation lasting over a decade, and it's a 200-page lawsuit, and it looks like they're quite serious. Uh, What's your read on it? Well, the lawsuit, which is actually almost almost 300 pages, is a very comprehensive, well-written complaint showing that Donald would value properties when he was seeking a loan at as much as 65 times what he said their value was when he was trying to get a property tax cut. Now, you know, you can go argue with the county assessor that, well, you know, I say my house is worth this and you say that and there's a 10 percent difference between you, maybe 20 percent in an extreme case. But 65 times to one, that's what's called a badge of fraud. Trump has been doing this his entire life. I wrote about examples of this many years ago from his own public statements. Uh, but he's never had law enforcement coming after him. Now, the Attorney General of New York, who's elected, Letitia James, only has civil authority. So this is not a criminal case. She is referring the complaint to the Internal Revenue Service and the Justice Department and is already cooperating with the state, that is Manhattan Attorney General, Uh, in these matters. But as a civil matter, she makes out an overwhelming case that Trump, his family, his uh, agents, his employees, knowingly, deliberately, calculatingly, effectively kept two sets of books. And when he's facing the tax man, he's a pauper. And when he is uh, trying to get a loan from a bank, he's Crecious Incarnate. So in saying that he, Trump, and his associates padded their numbers and cherry-picked data, I take it that they've got a lot of information, right? For example, you mentioned uh, the Manhattan DA. I thought he had dropped the case because two of the leading prosecutors, both of whom were very professional and highly regarded, complained about it. Didn't he get hold of uh, the Mazars? Deutsche Bank records. So what records are we talking about in terms of what Letitia James has? It's not surprising, and I expect many people in the audience are unable to keep all the many investigations going straight. The new district attorney in Manhattan shut down the racketeering investigation of the Trump Organization, which I thought was an abominable decision, but nonetheless, that's what he did. But he still has ongoing a... uh, Uh, financial fraud and tax fraud investigation. It's much narrower than the racketeering case. And the attorney general has been sharing information and trading information with them. So the key documents that the uh, New York State Attorney General got were uh, Trump's uh, uh, tax filings and accounting records from the Mazars accounting firm, a lot of bank records because the key banks involved, particularly Deutsche Bank, the German bank famous for laundering money for Russian criminals, is cooperating. And the 
uh, testimony of a number of relatively low-level people who spoke and answered the questions uh, presented to them, unlike Donald Trump, his children, and some of his executives who asserted their Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. You'll recall Donald Trump famously said, nobody takes the Fifth Amendment unless they're guilty. Right. But didn't Trump take it over 400 times when Letitia James deposed him? Yes, he did. They made him answer, you know, um, respond to every question, and he just kept saying fifth. So there's two tracks here. There's a civil case that Letitia James, the Attorney General of New York, just filed today against the Trump organization, Trump and his family, and the ongoing Manhattan DA case, which is a criminal case, right? That's correct. And then this is uh, the, the, the State Attorney General, Letitia James, referred this also to the Internal Revenue Service and to the uh, federal prosecutors in Manhattan, the Southern District of New York. And then Trump has these other cases like the one in Fulton County, Georgia. And clearly the Justice Department has a very big case going against Trump over the documents that he took from the White House, the documents that don't belong to him, and some of which are incredibly sensitive national security documents um, that would identify uh, our assets, our spies, or people who are helping us uh, who are in foreign governments. So there's lots of uh, lots of things bearing down on Donald Trump. And unfortunately, in the middle of all this, he generally has lawyers who just aren't very good. I mean, I would expect if we could get their records, we'd find out most of them barely passed the bar and graduated in the bottom of their classes. And again, I'm speaking with David K. Johnson, a Pulitzer Prize winning investigative reporter and best-selling author of The Making of Donald Trump. A 13-year veteran of the New York Times, he won the Pulitzer Prize in 2001 for reporting that uncovered loopholes in inequities in the U.S. tax code that he's uncovered so many tax dodges that he's being called the de facto tax enforcement officer of the United States, the co-founder of DCReport.org. His latest book is The Big Cheat, How Donald Trump fleeced America and enriched himself and his family. Well, he did have a rally over the weekend, which was an interesting contrast. At the same time, Trump was speaking to a QAnon crowd in Youngstown, Ohio. The Attorney General gave a speech at Ellis Island uh, welcoming immigrants to the United States and talking about the rule of law and how the what's great about America is that and why the immigrants came here in the first place was that the law protects you in this country and no one is above the law. Contrast that with what Trump was saying to this QAnon rally where they all gave this kind of Nazi salute, which is just so disturbing. And a lot of people have interpreted what Trump was saying there to the QAnon crowd about him being the most persecuted president in American history. Is He's, he's readying that crazy group of people to take to the streets if he's indicted. And that's an implicit threat against Merrick Garland and, in fact, the United States because he's toying with civil war. Well, we've already had Trumpers act violently, not just January 6th, but on some other occasions, and notably when a guy tried to attack FBI agents in Ohio. And I don't say this with any pleasure Uh, I just say it as a cold reality, and I've been saying it since 2015. There will be blood. Uh, We will not get out of this without innocent people being murdered. Uh, That is no reason to back off. Trump has implied in some of his statements that 
if you don't want to have violence, don't prosecute me. Well, we're not going to be held ransom by a con artist. And one of the things about his rally that's very important, Ian, you know, the, the crowds are shrinking. I've sent reporters from uh, my news organization, DC Reports, to several rallies, and we've judged the size of them. And he very carefully controls the cameras so that you don't have pictures seeing all the empty seats. And when Donald was a casino owner in Atlantic City, where he, you know, uh, had 12 and 13 and 14 year old children who were gambling and they were plied with liquor and limousines and hotel suites because they had money to gamble. And um, he was raking in incredible profits. He's always bragging Atlantic City is the number one tourist destination in America. 32 million people come. Well, back then I wrote a story showing that uh, essentially there were about 2 million people who were coming to Atlantic City 16 times a year. And that's what's happening with his rallies. It's the same people. They'll travel all the way across the country just to go to his rally. So this is not a huge movement. This is a movement of a cult of people who are delusional absolutely delusional and like any cult whatever the leader says that's the truth and nothing will break into uh into their minds that's contrary to what the leader wants well it doesn't take that many people i mean arguably there weren't that many people who stormed the capital on january the 6th but they were enough to do damage and they came very close to a successful coup uh, in shutting down well, the transfer of I, uh, power in this country I, I, I don't think they came close to an actual coup. I think they came close to delaying the transfer of power. And they've been emboldened since then by the absolute spineless and craven behavior of Mitch McConnell, Kevin McCarthy, and other Republican leaders in bowing down to Trump. If they, on January 6th, if, if the Republican leadership had said, that's it, we're through with you, we wouldn't be where we are today. So the entire Republican leadership is is deeply at fault here. But the, Trump's followers do not have the capacity to overthrow our government. They do have the capacity to murder FBI agents, murder uh, elections officials, uh, randomly kill individuals in the street. And that's going to happen. I, I, I'm, I hate having to say that, but this is going to happen. But it will be an, a horrible, unfortunate set of crimes they don't have the numbers to overthrow the government. You want to overthrow the government, you've got to be willing to die for the cause. And there's no evidence that there are millions of Americans willing to die for Donald Trump. And in fact, if you look at his, uh, the pictures at his rallies, where they did this weird QAnon thing with the QAnon-type music in the background, they're older. They're not young. Well, if there's one thing that we know about revolutions around the world is that they are almost always the work of I'm talking about popular revolutions of young people, people in their teens and twenties who conclude that the unknown future is better than the known future. That's not Trump's crowd. Trump's crowd is more people like me with gray hair. So David K. Johnson, back to Letitia James's lawsuit. It seems that they had a hard time with Leiselberg, the accountant, but they've apparently got another Trump accountant, Donald Bender, who's given them a lot of testimony. And he was apparently personally shocked at the discrepancies between uh, what he told the tax man and what he told the banks in terms of the appraisals of his properties. 
What do you know about this Donald Bender? I mean, are there are there some credible people that can take the stand and build a case against well, Trump? Well, I know that, you know, Bender and uh, several other people who were named in the complaint decided that, you know, when push came to shove, they were not going to risk going to jail for Donald. And Alan Weiselberg, who's basically a wholly owned subdivision of Donald Trump's mind, uh, was, of course, always going to stick with Donald no matter what happens to him. But, you know, they don't need uh, for this individual testimony. They'll get some and it'll be very good because they've got the documents. And when they showed that Donald Trump asserted that he had consulted with professionals, in some cases named them on the value of his properties, and then they have the document showing that the value was put on something was one, and Donald uh, went and filed a statement saying the value was 17, that's all they need. They, the, 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 the documents uh, have been verified, and they don't get up on the witness stand and fudge or lie. So in terms of what will happen in this case in the end, uh, Donald will lose control of his businesses. He will be barred from uh, being in business in New York. Uh, I would expect he's going to try and uh, liquidate a lot of these businesses. The problem is he owes more money on some things than they're worth, and he has uh, what are called cross-collateralization agreements. Uh, if you have a credit card, you have one of those. You don't have a credit card on all your credit cards. Um, so uh, he, he, he's facing nothing but disaster going forward in terms of his finances, and that's without even a, a criminal charge. Well, it does sound that she's got some serious ammunition against Trump, Letitia James, the New York Attorney General. And the lawsuit alleges that there have been misrepresentations by Trump and his family and the Trump Organization on financial statements that repeatedly and persistently violated a host of state criminal laws. And the lawsuit also alleges that fraud was committed by upper management at the Trump Organization and approved at the highest levels of the Trump Organization, including by Mr. Trump himself. And of course, she wanted to say these acts of fraud and misrepresentation grossly inflated Mr. Trump's personal network as reported in these statements by billions of dollars and conveyed false and misleading impressions of his actual wealth that's right. always been the case right he's been a fake billionaire and the russians have basically been propping up as far as i can tell most of his business life yeah Do donald is the third generation head of a four generation white collar crime family they don't break your legs or kill you they steal from from you and they steal from all of us by falsifying documents refusing to pay bills um, uh, vastly inflating the value of an asset when they give it away for a charitable deduction. You know, Trump, uh, uh, for property tax purposes, claimed that his Palos Verdes golf course in Los Angeles is only worth $10 million. But by his own account, he has said it's worth over a quarter of a billion dollars. And uh, he said that because he's believed to have taken at least a $26 million deduction for a piece of the land that wasn't developable. Palos Verdes has an active earthquake fault, and the golf course is right on it. So here's land he can't develop. He uh, gave an easement on it, took this huge tax deduction, and by the way, still uses it as a driving range. That's criminal. That's flat-out criminal. And it's the kind of thing that the IRS should have done a long time ago, except for one thing. 
20 plus years of Republican demands have shriveled the IRS to the point where they can't even process returns in a timely fashion. So they're certainly not going after super rich people. Uh, you'll recall, Ian, I was on your show, I think it was in 2018, when we broke the story that the third Koch brother, Donald Trump's next door neighbor uh, to Mar-a-Lago, uh, was under criminal investigation by the IRS. And as soon as Donald became president, the IRS dropped the case like a hot potato. And so this gentleman has now collected well over a billion dollars for paying no income taxes instead of being prosecuted. Well, just in closing, uh, Letitia James, the Attorney General of New York, said uh, today, Wednesday, uh, that I want to be clear, white-collar financial crime is not a victimless crime. You've been on the beat uh, in terms of white-collar crime for a long time, David. Just elaborate on what she's really saying there. Well, when banks uh, loan money to Donald Trump that he isn't qualified to get, it means they're not making loans to you and me and some small business person or someone trying to buy a house. The banks don't have unlimited capacity to loan. Uh, when banks go along, as they must have, and these are big banks, a Chase Bank, Deutsche Bank, uh, uh, when they go along with crooked deals like this, they also put everyone at risk because if those loans sour and aren't repaid, there's losses from those loans. And I'll tell you how brazen this is. It's outside of the 10-year statute of limitations, so it's not in Letitia James' suit. But when Donald Trump bought Mar-a-Lago, he bragged everybody that he paid cash for it. Well, it turned out that Chase Bank loaned him the price plus an extra $2 million. So he took $2 million back off the top. And I have a letter in which a Chase Bank vice president writes that they will not record that loan at the courthouse and make it a public record. It is a crime in New York for a bank to not record a mortgage. And this was a New York bank loaning money on a Florida property. The law still applies. You have bankers who will thumb their nose at the law on behalf of Donald Trump and issue mortgages for which there is no public record. It isn't just his PR spin that's going on here. It shows us that we are not aggressive enough and active enough in enforcing white-collar laws. And for a long time, I've been calling for a major increase in white-collar law enforcement and a rethinking of white-collar crimes to eliminate a lot of the defenses like, well, I thought I did the right thing. Uh, because people involved in these crimes have lawyers and accountants, and if they corrupt them, then they're corrupting the whole system to the detriment of us all. Well, David K. Johnston, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Take care. Glad to be with you. And we've been talking with David K. Johnston, a Pulitzer Prize winning investigative reporter and best-selling author of The Making of Donald Trump. A 13-year veteran of the New York Times, he won the Pulitzer Prize for reporting that uncovered loopholes and inequities in the U.S. tax code. And he's uncovered so many tax dodges that he's been called the de facto tax enforcement officer of the United States He's the co-founder of DCReport.org, and his latest book is The Big Cheat, How Donald Trump Fleeced America and Enriched Himself and His Family. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back assessing the threats Putin made today to call up reserves, annex captured territory in Ukraine, and possibly use nuclear weapons, declaring that it's not a bluff. Well, he says he's got a big high road. 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Michael Kimmage, who's a Professor of History and Department Chair at the Catholic University of America, Chair of the Cannon Institute Advisory Council and a Fellow of the German Marshall Fund. From 2014 to 2017, he served on the Secretary's Policy Planning Staff at the United States Department of State, where he held the Russia-Ukraine Portfolio. His latest book is The Abandonment of the West, The History of an Idea in American Foreign Policy, and he has an article at Foreign Affairs, Putin's Next Move in Ukraine, Mobilize, Retreat, or Something in Between. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael Kimmich. Great to be back, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Michael, and I guess whatever is in between is pretty alarming. President uh, Putin made an address to the nation in Russia today, a very dark and somewhat threatening tone that he took. Uh, He's calling on the Defense Secretary Shogu to mobilize 300,000 people from a pool of 25 million. Of course, having conscription in Russia, there's a pretty big pool of people, but already young men are fleeing the country as much as they can get on planes, and cities have been closed in the south in particular, and police are checking young men trying to get out of the country. But the most alarming stuff that he said was, without any offering any evidence, he accused NATO of threatening to use nuclear weapons against Russia and went on to say that the weather vane could turn towards them, adding that Russia also has various means of destruction. And then to quote Putin today, when the territorial integrity of our country is threatened, we will certainly use all the means at our disposal to protect Russia and our people. It's not a bluff. So... Was he bluffing before? I mean, do you see this as dark as a lot of people uh, are interpreting it? I believe so. I think it's quite dark and uh, ominous. It's not necessarily a blueprint to what Putin will do that could be less severe than it seems, but he's committing himself publicly to, you know, some very formidable methods and formidable outcomes. Uh, And he's edging much closer to a war in his terms than what had previously been called a military technical uh, operation. And, you know, the the upshot of that is that a war is much harder for Putin to lose. And so he'll be much more ruthless than he's been even in the last couple of months. And in terms of his announcement of plans to annex four Ukrainian provinces, Luhansk, Donetsk, Zaporizhia, and Kherson, does that mean that once he does that, He's declaring it Russian territory. In other words, parts of Ukraine have suddenly become Russian territory. And if the Ukrainians lob a shell or fire a missile into that territory, will they argue that this is an attack on Russia itself? That's exactly what he's going to try to do. I mean, he's indicated that, I think, already very clearly that uh, these territories will be under the umbrella, the same umbrella that uh, regular Russian territory uh, is under, and so that doesn't mandate a nuclear counterstrike, but it would justify one. Uh, And that's, if Putin means it seriously, and he may, uh, it's a very radical step to take. Well, indeed, that is what's being echoed by his chief propagandist, the head of RT. They're not making a secret out of the, the intention. So Ukraine obviously is not going to accept that idea. So what do you expect to happen here after, I think it's Friday when they start annexing the territory? Well, there'll be a showdown. 
and you know, I don't. I, I think you're exactly right. Ukraine is not going to stop. It's got momentum. It's got capacity, uh, and it wants to remove every Russian soldier from Ukrainian soil. Uh, and it's not as if Putin is negotiating in private. You know, he's setting these conditions publicly, and um, uh, he, you know, may not go the full distance, but he may alter his methods. You know, that said, Putin has made a lot of maximalist demands. Over the course of the last year, I mean, prior to the war, he was setting all of these conditions about NATO going back in its territory. And, uh, you know, that didn't lead to a nuclear exchange. So, you know, Putin has blustered before and he may be blustering now, but he's doing so on a, on a tightrope. I mean, it's, it's, um, uh, it's very, very hard for him to pull back. So obviously using the military assets he had and re- using people from the furthest provinces as cannon fodder, initially worked out for him, but the casualties are so huge and the military seems to be falling apart that he's he's been forced to go for the conscripts who've already done service. They're in the reserves. It's a pool of 25 million, but already there are reports of young men getting their papers already, trying to get on flights out of the country, trying to find ways out, and the police uh, closing all the borders. So what happens when these young men are thrown into this battle, which presumably the officer corps in the Russian army has been degraded, and I don't know whether you get to the position of frack, fragging and rebellion, but I don't know how these young urbanites are going to deal with this. They're not going to be too happy, are they? No, absolutely. I mean, I think it helps one to understand the nuclear bluster when you look, as as your question does, at the military realities that Putin is facing. And he has a couple of serious problems. One is that he doesn't have a real strategic concept for the war, which is to say a set of achievable aims. Uh, He set these very grand aims of more or less dominating or controlling Ukraine, which is very, very far from where he is at the moment. Uh, But the other problem is that with mobilization, it takes a lot of time. So even if he had willing recruits, which he doesn't seem to have at the moment, it would take months, uh, maybe up to a year, to really bring them into the Russian military to give them the proper training and uh, and all of that. Uh, and morale has not been great up to now with the Russian military. That's been true from the very moment of the of the war's beginning. Uh, and if he's going to, you know, sort of dragoon people into into fighting, morale will get worse. Uh, so the timeline works against him. Uh, and the chances of him getting really highly motivated, capable fighters in his military through these methods, those are a slim at best. So uh, in a sense, without the nuclear bluster, I think his losing venture would just be much more conspicuous. And what are the possibilities of more territorial gains uh, by Ukraine in the meantime? As you say, this is not going to, it's going to take a while to fill the ranks and train up these reserves. Uh, Meanwhile, Ukraine is, seems to be on a roll, does it not? It's routing the Russians, and particularly around Kherson. Uh, I'm not sure if, if, if I would say around Kherson it's been, a, it's been a route. There have been some steady gains, but they've been incremental and, and, and relatively modest around uh, Kherson. Of course, that dynamic could change. I also wouldn't characterize what happened on the 10th of September and, and thereafter around Kharkiv as a route. I think it was a bit more of a retreat on the Russian part, but a very hasty one that left a lot of uh, equipment in Ukrainian hands. But uh, it's sort of that the Russians pulled back to more defensible 
uh, line. So, you know, it's, it's anybody's guess. Uh, it may be, you know, something of a stalemate for a while, but it's absolutely clear from the offensive that the Ukrainians mounted around Kharkiv that the Ukrainians have the capacity uh, to really push the Russians back on their heels. Uh, and that capacity is going to grow over time. It's not going to diminish because they have quite a lot of soldiers at arms and they're getting ever more sophisticated weaponry from uh, from the West. So if Putin stands still, uh, Ukraine is going to move forward. I think you can make that prediction safely. But, you know, how far, how fast is, is, is truly very hard to say. But in terms of the all-encompassing Orwellian media narrative that Putin has managed to maintain and keep the Russian people in this sort of bubble of delusion that this is a special military operation and Ukraine is a this weak neighbor run by a bunch of Nazis and they're going to overrun them. And uh, initially, of course, that didn't work out. And now, apparently, there's been enough of a crack in the propaganda wall. The military bloggers are on, on the nationalist side have been complaining. The word seems to be getting out, at least in part to the Russian people, that things aren't going well in Ukraine. And how do they get their heads around the idea that the great and powerful Russia is not defeating a small neighbor? Well, it's, 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 it's a humiliation for Putin, which is what he's reacting to in part. I mean, there is another narrative which has been there since the beginning, and it's now gotten a lot of emphasis, which is that Russia is not really at war with Ukraine. Uh, Russia is really at war with NATO uh, and the West, uh, which is a little bit ap apocalyptic when, when, when you hear it, but serves as a sort of more transparent explanation for Russians as to why the Russian military might be might be losing. So, you know, the, that narrative has, has been driven very powerfully in the last uh, couple of days. And that seems to be the phase into which the war is moving uh, on the Russian side, just to say that this is an outright war with the West. Uh, and inevitably, then it has a kind of nuclear dimension. Uh, and that's, you know, it doesn't mandate anything in terms of battlefield realities, but it's just something I find quite worrisome, I, I have to say. Well, it's undoubtedly worrisome because it's a one-sided narrative. The West is sending weapons, but they're not sending men, even though that's what Putin's telling the Russian people, that it's not the Ukrainians they're fighting, it's Americans and NATO. So he's laying the table for a war, isn't he? And when he talks about nuclear weapons, this is starting to sound pretty alarming to me. I mean, it's, it's paradoxical in a way because... It, in reality, Russia is struggling uh, in a military campaign against Ukraine. So it doesn't make any sense to widen the war and to bring in other uh, combatants. It's not that Putin really has that power, but if he's going to sort of nudge things in that direction rhetorically, does it make any sense? Uh, on its surface, it doesn't. Uh, but it does form into a credible narrative for Russian setbacks. But again, the thing to worry about is what is Putin committing himself to and does Putin offer himself, is he offering himself any way to step down uh, from this conflict? And if the answer to that is no, uh, then that's going to put the West in a terrible bind, not this week or next week, but maybe in a month or two in terms of how to respond to this kind of Russian brinksmanship, because that's that's kind of clearly where it's inclining. I mean, that's that's what he has left. I mean, maybe economic things will, 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 will move his direction this winter. That's possible. But otherwise, all he's got left really is brinksmanship. And is he responding to pressure from the right, from the nationalists? And as far as I can tell, there's absolutely, I don't know what kind of constituency there's left in liberal pro-Western Russia. Navalny, of course, is in jail. And you've got 
these nationalists and the military bloggers pressuring him to take the gloves off, you know, saying that they're fighting with one hand behind their back, the kind of stuff that we heard during the Vietnam War. So isn't that a scary prospect that Putin is being driven further and further into desperation by the right? And the conventional wisdom I've always heard is that if there's to be a successor to Putin, it's not going to be a liberal. It's going to be somebody like Petrushev on the right. Well, that's, of course, possible. But Petrushev is very much a part of this war. So if the war fails, he may get swept along in its uh, in its failure. Of course, liberal Russia is small uh, and it's not really something Putin has to worry about too much or that's been the case for the last couple of years. And Putin is not, you know, it's a dictatorship in Russia, so he's not accountable to anybody. And so he can ignore the nationalist camp, but the pressure from there is rising. What Putin cannot afford across the board politically is to be seen as incompetent uh, or as a failure. Uh, and I think we just don't know how he reacts to that, but uh, things are inching in that direction because, of course, we can you know, put all the strategic questions to one side. The execution of the war has been incompetent, uh, and it suggests a lot of individual failures on the part of the Russian ruling elite and a part of, uh, a part of the Russian military. Uh, dictators can't be seen to fail. That's the one thing they really cannot do. Uh, and you know, you can sense that this trap is beginning to close around Putin, one very much of his own making. So is there a possibility of any intervention? There's talk of, of the Pope and others getting involved, which all seems rather fanciful. The portrait you're portraying here, Michael Kimmage, is a rather alarming one, and it's a realistic one. We are dealing with a dictator. And we've seen this bad movie before right. with people like Hitler, you know, basically taking over from the generals and digging the hole deeper. So is there any alternative? Is there anybody that can reach him? I don't think so. No, I don't think that uh, the system allows for uh, any kind of major revision that wouldn't come from Putin himself. And, you know, it's, it's hopeless with the Pope or with outside interlocutors, I suppose, you know, this is another avenue to explore sort of intellectually, that China would have real leverage over Russia. China doesn't want to see a nuclear exchange in Ukraine. China does not want to see this war go completely off the rails for the same reason that the rest of us don't want to see the war to, going off the rails. So, you know, an intervention on the part of China might be meaningful uh, if China would, instead of offering the kind of tepid criticism that Xi Jinping was giving Putin a few days ago if they would really break with Russia uh, or exert pressure privately on Putin to to change gears. Perhaps that's the only thing that we could hope for, but certainly no other instrument or power can really reach Putin, uh, especially the instruments and powers that come from the West. And to a lesser extent, apparently, in Modi of India, also at the same Shanghai cooperation meeting, tried to weigh in a little as well, but that's not sufficient, right? No, I don't think India or Modi has the sway of China and, and Xi Jinping. That's probably the only outside force in Russia, or rather in the Kremlin, that, that matters. So just in closing, then, what can Biden do? He, he made a pretty strong speech at the UN today, and it's notable that Putin and Xi didn't show up. So obviously, there's no point in escalating this situation. But on the other hand, you have to hold Russia accountable. It's, it's, it's very, very tricky going for Biden. Uh, because the more Putin gets out of control, uh, you know, the more problems Biden is going to uh, is going to have. I mean, obviously, he has to stay the course. He can't back down because to succumb to a bully would just lead to more 
bullying, but he has to find ways, maybe just through language, to try to convey maybe a certain uh, moderation. I don't think that talking to Putin would make any difference, and it's not something that Biden wants to uh, wants to do. But sort of constancy of effort, moderation of rhetoric, uh, and the construction of the biggest possible global alliance to contend with Putin and to contend with the threats that are coming, perhaps in tandem with China, U.S. in tandem with China, I think that that's the recipe uh, to pursue, but it will furnish very few guarantees, I'm afraid. Well, Marco Kimmage, I thank you very much for joining us here today. It's been a pleasure. Always a pleasure to speak with you, Ian. Well, thank you, Michael. And again, I've been speaking with Michael Kimmage, who's a professor of history and department chair at the Catholic University of America, chair of the Kennan Institute Advisory Council and a fellow at the German Marshall Fund from 2014 to 2017. He served on the Secretary's Policy Planning Staff at the United States Department of State, where he held the Russia-Ukraine portfolio. And his latest book is The Abandonment of the West, A History of an Idea in American Foreign Policy. And he has an article foreign affairs, Putin's next move in Ukraine, mobilize, retreat, or something in between. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining President Biden's address today before the UN General Assembly. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Richard Gowan, the United Nations Director at the International Crisis Group. He has worked with the European Council on Foreign Relations, New York University Center on International Cooperation, and the Foreign Policy Center in London, and has taught at the School of International and Public Affairs at Columbia University and at Stanford in New York. And he has also worked as a consultant for the organizations, including the United Nations Department of Political Affairs, the United Nations Office of Special Representative of the Secretary General on International Migration, and the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. Welcome to Background Briefing, Richard Gowan. Thank you very much for the invitation. Well, thanks for joining us. And at the UN General Assembly, President Biden spoke today. He said, let us speak plainly. A permanent member of the United Nations Security Council invaded its neighbor and attempted to erase a sovereign state from the map. And then he went on to say that the war in Ukraine was chosen by one man, to be very blunt, and that Russia has shamelessly violated the core tenets of the United Nations Charter. Not surprisingly, perhaps, neither uh, Russia or China, neither Putin or Xi Jinping showed up so how was Biden's speech met with the General Assembly? It's always hard to tell when you're not in the hall. And as an NGO representative, I, I, I can't be in the, the room myself this week. But my sense was that it hit the right notes. I mean, Biden was unsurprisingly extremely critical of Vladimir Putin, as you say, but he also devoted a lot of speech to issues that are of concern to countries beyond the West, such as the international food price crisis and climate change. And I think what a lot of 
presidents and prime ministers from Africa, Latin America and, and Asia were wanting to hear was precisely that, yes, the US is focused on Ukraine, but it does understand their concerns about issues like food security too. And so I think you got the balance between the specific war in Europe and global challenges roughly right. Well, it does seem that he had to make last-minute adjustments to his speech in response to the speech that Putin just made, in which he talked about calling up reserves and also threatening, in effect, to use nuclear weapons, saying that he wasn't bluffing this time. In his speech, Biden said a nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought. So presumably, he is responding to Putin, is he not? And what's your sense of whether Putin really escalated beyond the point where, I mean, it's not normally in diplomatic circles. Nuclear saber rattling is something that we saw, what, back in the 1960s, but not not in this decade. I think analysts are divided over whether Putin was really making a a new threat today or whether he was repeating uh, threats that he had made actually back in February about the potential use of nuclear weapons. But Biden did um, pick up on that. And I thought his his comments about Russia were, were strong. But I, I mean, I had expected him to be extremely plain speaking about Russia's behavior under any circumstances. I actually thought that what was a little more surprising was that despite concentrating on Russia, he had time to include some jabs at China. And this is noteworthy because in his first speech as president to the General Assembly last year, Biden didn't mention China by name at all. This year, he was very frank that the US is in a strategic competition with China, and he raised China's nuclear program. uh, And he also talked about human rights abuses against the Uyghurs in Western China. So I think Beijing will have seen this as quite a challenging speech from the US president. So in terms of uh, what he said about Ukraine, again, quoting President Biden, this war is about extinguishing Ukraine's right to exist as a state, plain and simple, and Ukraine's right to exist as a people. Wherever you are, wherever you live, whatever you believe, that should make your blood run cold. Because if nations can pursue their imperial ambitions without consequences, then we put at risk everything this very institution stands for. So I think talking about at that level of of almost genocide and plus, uh, uh, in a sense, dealing with the issue of sovereignty as opposed to the struggle between democracy and autocracy, surely that should resonate, do you think? I mean, sovereignty should be a core issue amongst members of the General Assembly. I think that's right. And actually, the key word in the passage you read out um, is imperial. Right back in February and since then, the US has been trying to tell non-Western countries at the UN that Russia is engaged in a colonial war. And that's actually something which some non-Western countries like Kenya have echoed in previous UN debates. The, The Americans realized that if this is just seen as a European conflict or a conflict between NATO and Russia, then a lot of non-Western countries are not really going to uh, put their weight behind the Ukrainians. 
But if you frame it as colonialism, um, that's something which actually does resonate with uh, a lot of diplomats and leaders from around the world. And so I think that's what um, Biden was attempting to do in that moment. And we've heard very similar things from the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Linda Thomas-Greenfield, over the last year as well. So in terms of the U.S. U.N. itself and its institutions, you've written about this in Just Security uh, on Ukraine and how Russia's war reverberates in the United Nations. You mentioned in the Just Security piece, I mean, Biden did I th- not emphasize it, but he did mention reforming the Security Council and that you've mentioned that we hear, quoting you, we hear that French and Chinese diplomats have been quietly working to minimize council frictions behind the scenes. So what kind of reforms are doable at the level of the Permanent Five? Well, right now, I don't think there's any political space for reforms to the UN Charter, which would mean perhaps changing rules around the way the P5 use their vetoes or actually changing the composition of the council. The UN Charter specifically says that any one of the permanent five members can block uh, alterations to the charter, even if the rest of the world wants them. And at the moment, you can't imagine the US or anyone else uh, coming up with a package of reform proposals on things like the veto that Russia would accept or China would accept. But I think Biden was right to talk about the need for UN reform today, because around the UN and more globally, there obviously has been profound disquiet about the Security Council's inability to do anything over Russia's war on Ukraine. And I think a lot of leaders and a lot of diplomats and indeed a lot of pundits sort of have been asking if this shows that the organization is is fundamentally doomed. So it's smart of the US to stand up and say, we, we know there are problems. Uh, we're not going to hide behind our privileges in the UN Charter. We actually want to start a debate about change. And I think that won't lead to quick results. It may lead to no results at all, but it will win the US some goodwill because it it, it also challenges a common conception amongst smaller countries of the UN, which is that secretly the US, Russia and China um, are actually collaborating to preserve the rules of the UN as it exists to their advantage. And the US is sort of showing that isn't necessarily the case. And what about the possibility of countries like India and Germany, for example, becoming uh, members of what would be the permanent seven? So the U.S. uh, is very aware that one country that is really opposed to expanding the number of permanent seats is China. And that is because China is furiously opposed to any reform that would give Japan um, a permanent seat on the council and implicitly India, too. China wants to remain as the only Asian country with a veto at the U.N., And so I think that even if the U.S. is able to stimulate a productive and interesting diplomatic round of discussions on U.N. reform, sooner or later, the Chinese are going to block um, progress towards reform. But again, it's not actually a bad thing 
from an American point of view to show up the fact that the Chinese are spoilers in reform debates. It um, will communicate to African countries, to other Asian countries, that rather than championing um, the global south, China is trying to hold on to its own power. So this may end up being a process that um, uh, turns into a US-Chinese battle. Uh, I do worry that while Washington can win some goodwill through this process, it could also do more harm to its relationship with Beijing. Um, and that could have costs in the Security Council on uh, sort of day-to-day -day crisis management too. But in terms of the UN General Assembly, in March, the US and Europeans were able to get 141 General Assembly members to back a resolution condemning Russia's aggression. And also, you also point out in your Just Security article, Richard Gowan, that uh, the General Assembly also voted 101 last week to allow Vladimir Zelensky of Ukraine to speak via video when most of the members are turning up in person. Of course, they during COVID, it was acceptable, but this time around, it's more in person. So a little bit of progress there, right? I mean, this is what it's about, isn't it? Small incremental progress, no great sweeping changes. Well, I think that, you know, the US and its allies in Europe uh, did a, a a fine job um, back in March, rallying a very significant coalition against uh, Russia's aggression in the General Assembly. As the year has gone on, it's been clear that a lot of non-Western countries haven't really wanted to repeatedly challenge Russia at the UN. But nonetheless, there is still, I think, quite a high degree of sympathy for the Ukrainians around the UN. And that came out in the vote to allow Zelensky to speak uh, via video link today. Ultimately, we have to recognize the General Assembly is not a UN organ, unlike the Security Council, that can really s sort of engage operationally in crisis management. It can't order sanctions on Russia, for example. It's more a place where you can shape the political narrative and uh, countries can bond together around common narratives about what is going on in a very severe crisis such as that that we're now seeing in Europe. And that's what um, Joe Biden and Emmanuel Macron, who also gave a very strong speech uh, yesterday, uh, are trying to do. They're trying to tilt the political narrative at the global level in Ukraine's favour. But just to deal with Putin's speech, which obviously caused Biden to rewrite his speech, the nuclear saber rattling, I mean, he, as you mentioned, uh, Richard Gowan, that he, he had made similar threats about the use of nuclear weapons. But in general, there's the impression that Putin is under some, some stress at home. He's getting pushed from the right by the nationalists who feel he should take the gloves off. Uh, and he's fighting the war with one hand tied behind his back. It's a refrain that we heard during the Vietnam War here in the United States. So it doesn't seem that there's much space here for any kind of peace in this war. Also, the move on Friday to start annexing territory so that the Russians could then say that the Ukrainian territories that they've annexed are now part of Russia, and therefore if you lob a shell or a missile on it, you're attacking Russia itself. That has the potential for escalating this war. 
the UN General Secretary Gutierrez has been quite alarmed by this war for some time. He was extremely upset about the nuclear plant at Zaporizhia and, and the military activity around that that was reckless and dangerous. This is a really dangerous moment, is it not? This war is escalating, and this is a moment for somebody to step up. At this point, I don't see that from this General Assembly, but maybe you do. So give me your impression of whether there's any possibility that this session can go beyond accusations back and forth, like we heard from President Biden, into some kind of push to bring about reason and and restraint? Well, I mean, I think everyone came into this this week very pessimistic about um, the chances of any real diplomacy uh, over Ukraine, even before the news about um, the orchestrated referendums on uh, uh, on the weekend sort of came through. Uh, Antonio Guterres actually said in a press conference last week, sort of setting the stage for the General Assembly, that it would be naive to think that you would have peace talks anytime soon. Um, we have seen some countries uh, coming with ideas about uh, frameworks for negotiations between Russia and Ukraine. Um, Mexico has actually been circulating a, I think, a rather nebulous plan for Guterres and the Pope and perhaps some other dignitaries to lead a negotiation. Um, Macky Sall, who's the president of Senegal, but also the chair of the African Union, used his speech yesterday to call for a high-level negotiation initiative. And he said that um, the African Union would be willing to deploy uh, some sort of mediator as part of an international effort uh, to get peace. I mean, I think this is all very well-intentioned. But the reality is, is that Putin is clearly now looking to uh, consolidate his gains, as you say. Uh, but on the other hand, the Ukrainians are also uh, sort of feeling that they now have some momentum on the battlefield after their successful offensive around Kharkiv. And what I understand is that the Ukrainians have also indicated to the UN and to Turkey that they don't want to sort of sit down for talks now. So. You're at a moment where, I mean, I think everyone is extremely nervous and no one can discount Putin's nuclear uh, bluster entirely. But if you're Antonio Guterres or if you're another leader at the UN, it's very, very hard to see how you, you get to peace talks. Um, the, the working assumption amongst UN officials all through the year has been that if there is any chance for peace, it will actually emerge from back-channel discussions, possibly back-channel discussions um, hosted by uh, by Turkey. Uh, that the you know the two sides are only going to be able to sit down and have really frank uh, conversations about what it would take to get to peace um, out of the public view. Uh, the problem with the General Assembly is that it's you know it's a great gathering, it's a great opportunity for everyone to make public statements of principle. But it is very much in the public view. And that makes it, you know, it makes it very unlikely that you're going to have sort of serious back channel discussions here here in New York. Well, Richard Gowan, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate um, your insight. Thank you very much indeed. 
And again, I've been speaking with Richard Gowan, who's United Nations Director at the International Crisis Group. He has worked with the European Council on Foreign Relations, New York University Centre on International Cooperation and the Foreign Policy Centre in London, and has taught at the School of International and Public Affairs at Columbia University and Stanford in New York. And he has also worked as a consultant for organisations, including the United Nations Department of Political Affairs, the United Nations Office of Special Representative of the Secretary General on International Migration, and the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America A quiet voice singing something to me I'm not